Lord, thank you for this awesome time we've had this morning, Lord. Thank you for salvation. We just can't thank you enough for everything you've done for us, Lord. You're just such an awesome God, and we just pray for, for Phil now and for his message this morning, Lord, in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Just before we read the first 19 verses of 1 Corinthians 15, I'm we're just going to listen to a song. Thank you. A stone can be found at a place in the ground where the body of Jesus was laid. It was never inscribed with the words to describe the power that grace still displays. For this monument where Jesus was sent was encarved with the story of death. It simply reveals a grave no longer sealed And the empty tomb says the rest No clever inscription could ever explain What happened that wonderful day And no epitaph could ever contain The words such a message should say No Description could ever describe what's spoken by empty walls. The stone rolled aside with nothing inscribed, but the empty tomb says it all. No black, red, and wall could hold nearly all the names of our Savior and Yeah, it's deep to it all. 
And that's really the substance of my message this morning. So can I sit down now? The empty tomb says it all. Amen? No need for inscriptions on the tomb of Jesus. No need for anything written because there wouldn't be enough space. But the empty tomb says everything. It says it all. Turn with me, would you please, to 1 Corinthians 15. Thank you for that, Brother Graham. He, Graham Moore gave me that song, and I was uh, going over the scripture in my mind as I was driving to work, and that song came on the desk, and I said, I'm going to play that. The empty tomb says it all. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we're going to read the first 19 verses. Moreover, brethren, verse 1, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, <coughs> that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that he was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of all the apostles who are not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Verse 11. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is preached, sorry, I'm going to go to my translation. Now, if Christ is preached that he is raised from among the dead, how do some among you say that there is not a resurrection of those that are dead? But if there is not a resurrection of those that are dead, neither is Christ raised. But if Christ is not raised, then indeed vain also is your preaching and vain also your faith. And we have found also false witnesses of God, for we have witnessed concerning God that he raised the Christ, whom he has not raised, if indeed those that are dead are not raised. For if those that are dead are not raised, neither is Christ raised. But if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain, 
You are yet in your sins. Then indeed also (coughs) those who have fallen in sleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are the most miserable of all men. I'm just going to read verse 3 again. I think I misread it. For I delivered to you in the first place what also I had received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised the third day according to the Scriptures. I think one of the most important questions that gets asked these days is what happens after death? Thousands of books have been written on this subject. I could fill this room with them. Many speculate about it. Lots of testimonies have been given about those persons who have died and supposedly come back to life again. The Apostle (coughs) Paul is dealing with what happens after death in this chapter. He brings us face to face with one of the greatest realities of life. One that is even more certain than paying your taxes, and that is death. Rowan Atkinson once said that death is something we each find very hard to avoid. You may evade paying your taxes, but you're not going to avoid growing old and ultimately dying. We may try hard to avoid it. I know a lot of people who are working hard at avoiding it, trying to cover up all the evidences of age and decay. But we have to face the fact that there is a, a process going on in each one of us right now, no matter how old or how young we are. And uh, this process is stealing the color out of our cheeks. It's taking the spring out of our step. It's reducing the sharpness of our senses so that we don't see quite so well anymore or hear quite so well anymore. And in many ways, it's depriving us of what we thought was the joy of living. It's coming upon all of us, folks, and it ain't slowing down. I have a friend in Kerikeri who I spoke to last weekend, and I don't know if you've heard about the terrible truck accident there was on Kerikeri Road. Two weeks ago tomorrow, two trucks smashed into each other going full flight. And there was a Kenworth who has up to the back of the cab about as much room as to the end of the stage and it was reduced to about this size and there was a driver in there. And this friend of mine was the attending fireman at the scene of the accident. And he saw a man crushed from his waist down. 
And um, he noticed how calm and peaceful the driver was. It was all over the news. He was there for two hours before they released his legs and the poison after two hours killed him. But he noticed something fall from his pocket just before he died and he picked it up and it was a picture known to be a picture of Jesus. And he said to me just before this man died, he said, Phil, I had this unusual kind of mysterious experience that Jesus was present in that truck as this man was dying, crushed and smashed up into this truck. And I said, funny that, Brother Craig, I said, Jesus was present. And it became quite obvious in the fire department that this man had died peacefully because he'd gone to be with the Lord and my friend had possibly, obviously never had that experience of dying in the presence of someone who saved and experiencing, he said, to me it was an unusually wonderful experience. Suddenly thinking, Jesus is present, and then two minutes later the man died. Death, men fear it. Why? Because they don't really know what's going to happen afterwards. Or more exactly, because they fear something terrible might happen. That's the reason they fear it. And Paul, in this well-known chapter, is dealing with what it is that happens to a person who's trusted the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation and dies. And the wonderful fact that it is all based on the glorious resurrection of Jesus. So he begins with a reminder of the gospel that had been preached to them and that they had received. Now we might have expected to hear a whole list of doctrines where the apostle says, I declare unto you the gospel, but instead of that he simply tells them of the resurrection of Jesus, the foundation of the gospel, that Jesus Christ had died and had risen again the third day according to the scriptures. But what is this gospel? Well, it's the good news of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It's the good news that God has acted to save people from their sins and to reconcile them to himself through Jesus Christ. For Paul, the gospel wasn't just good news in the sense of words spoken and words heard like a good story, but he said, it says it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel has the power to deliver lost sinners from darkness and to transfer them to the kingdom of his beloved son. Christ commands believers to share this good news with the rest of the world. 
This good news is Christ's life-giving message to a dying world. And so the gospel is good news, but Jesus never said it was easy news. The nature of the gospel is that it divides. There's nothing attractive about the gospel to the natural man. The only man who finds the gospel attractive is the man who's convicted of his sin by it. Vance Havner, the most quoted American preacher once said, the gospel makes some people sad, some mad, and some glad. It's better that people should go out of church mad than that they should go out neither sad, mad, or glad. Can I quote that again? <laughs> the gospel makes some people sad, some people mad, and some people glad. It's better that people should go out of church mad than merely go out neither sad, mad, or glad. The gospel first tells us Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That's the first thing. Isn't it amazing that he doesn't mention a word about the whole life of Jesus? He passes over his wonderful birth in the manger in Bethlehem through the silent years of Nazareth at the journeyings up and down the hillsides of Judea and Galilee all of his teaching and his miracles, and it comes down quickly and immediately to his death. This, Paul says, is the gospel. That's rather startling in itself, isn't it, friend? But that is where the gospel begins. And even here, he doesn't simply say Christ died. Ask people today what the gospel is, and they'll say, well, Jesus lived and died. No, that's not the gospel. Everyone believes that Jesus died. Go to any of the modern presentations of the life of Jesus and they all include the ultimate end of his death. Every humanist philosophy today accepts that Jesus died. And they, but there's no good news in that. The good news is that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That's the good news, that his death accomplished something for us. It changed us. It delivered us. It set us free. That death had great significance in the mind and heart of Almighty God. And this is the good news. This is the gospel. As Peter puts it in his words, he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Or to use the words of Isaiah, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And as my dear brother, Mr. Boyens, often says, when it says according to the scriptures, it's referring to Isaiah 53. Am I right, brother? That's the good news, that God did something for us. That marvelous event of the cross, 
And as we contemplate the cross and the dying of Jesus in our place, we see the good news of it is that God takes it seriously. And he's prepared to treat us in an entirely different way than we deserve to be treated on the basis of the death of Jesus on our behalf. That's the good news. There on the cross, we are told he dealt with our failures. He dealt with our rebellion. He dealt with our sinful, guilty lives. He did something about it so that our dark and stained past doesn't have to trouble us any longer. It has been set aside by the death of Jesus. And with that fact, we enter into hope and freedom. Of course, without that fact, life is really hopeless. The second element of the gospel, according to Paul, is that he not only died for our sins according to the scriptures, predicted, anticipated, and fulfilled in the cross, but he was also buried. It always amazes me when I read this passage of Scripture. Why does Paul include the burial of Jesus? It's not enough that Jesus died and rose again. Would that not be good news enough? Well, I suppose the reason for it is that when his disciples came and took the body of Jesus down from the cross, it marked their acceptance of the fact that he had died. Have you ever thought of how hard it was for them to accept that fact? That the one they'd been with all that time, they didn't want to believe it. When he told them that he was going to die, they shut it out of their minds. The one that they'd learned to love was going to die. When it actually happened, they went away stunned and unbelieving unwilling to believe that all their hopes and dreams had been crushed, all that they'd built up in those wonderful years with him would come crashing down and become nothing but empty hopes and dreams. Somewhere along the line, some realist among them faced up to it and said, we've got to get his body down and bury him. Joseph of Arimathea came forward and offered a tomb and with loving hands. They took his body down from the tree. They wrapped him in grave clothes. They took his head and wrapped it in a separate cloth. They embalmed him with spices and they placed him in the tomb where he lay for three days and three nights. There's no question that the disciples believed that he was dead in their minds. They didn't doubt it. They'd just performed the burial service. That's why Paul adds it here. But here's another thing. How wonderful that Jesus was buried as a picture of the man going out of sight forever that had offended Almighty God. When he was buried in a tomb, he disappeared from before sight. And that's a picture of the offensive man that God hates going out of sight forever in the death and burial of our Lord Jesus Christ. The third element, that he was raised on the third day according 
to the Scriptures. Once again, he fulfilled this prediction. It was anticipated that he would die. It was equally anticipated that he would rise from the dead. The Old Testament said so. On the third day, to the amazement of the disciples, he fulfilled all these predictions. He wasn't resuscitated or just coming back to the same life he had before. Friend, he was resurrected. That means he came back to a life that he never lived before, a real life, a glorified life, a different life, and yet in the amazing mystery of the resurrection, the same Jesus with the wounds in his hands and his side that they could touch and feel for themselves. This is the story of the gospel, three basic facts. These are not doctrines. These are not philosophies. These are not ideas that men have had about about what God should be like. These are simple, hard-nosed facts that occurred in history and cannot be eliminated or avoided. That he died according to the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised the third day according to the Scriptures. There they are. These facts have changed the history of the world. Our faith doesn't rest upon philosophy, but upon facts that have occurred and cannot be taken away. Praise God. The power at work in the gospel, which changes lives, is the resurrection life of Christ. And there were those in Corinth that simply didn't believe it. Man would have us believe that everything about life has only got to do with this life. That after that, there's nothing more. I spoke to a man once many years ago that said that he thought dying was just like going under anesthetic. It was a big, fat nothing. He had nothing to live for. He was miserable. He had nothing to die for. All he had was what he had in this life. If he made a mess of it, well, that was it. Live it up. Enjoy it while you can, he used to say. There's nothing more. You see, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then man has no responsibility. He won't be answerable to anyone. He uses it to justify his moral decline. And you know, in it all, he has a terrible foreboding. It's an interesting dichotomy going on. He thinks he's happy in his irresponsible life, but he's miserable with no hope and nothing to live for. Well, from verse 12 to 19, I think this is the most amazing portion of God's Word. The testimony of every witness was exactly the same. Everything declared that Christ was risen. Everything depended on the fact 
that he was risen. This was the starting point. If that which was preached among you is that Christ was raised from the dead, how is it that some among you say there's no resurrection? If there is none, Christ is not risen. And if he is not risen, the preaching of his witnesses is vain and the faith of Christians is vain. Not only that, but these witnesses become false witnesses. For they had declared that God had raised Christ from the dead. But God <coughs> had not raised him up if the dead don't rise. And in that case, their faith was vain and they were yet in their sins. And those who had already fallen asleep in Jesus had perished. Well, this is not just a general doctrine that the dead are raised. Christ, in rising, came up from among the dead. It is the favor and power of God that's come in to bring back from among the dead the one that had gone down into death to accomplish a great deliverance from the power of Satan. The scripture actually means that he came from among dead persons. That's why he's the firstborn from among the dead. It's very wonderful. There was a whole lot of dead people and just as sure as I was dead, Jesus died. But God raised him from the dead. The Bible says he was raised by the glory of the Father. I love to think of the glory of God enveloping that tomb where there was death. As the song said, it was a picture of death. It was nothing but death. And Jesus coming out by God's glory from the dead. How wonderful. And he put a public seal on the work of redemption to exhibit to man openly the victory over the power of the enemy. Praise God. And so he arose from among all the other dead. Death couldn't hold him. And he established this deliverance and he became the first fruits of them that slept. Persons who having his life await the exercise of his power which will awaken them one day from the dead. Nobody seems that excited. Gee, I'm excited. We're going to rise from the dead one day and live forever with Jesus. Amen? We have this hope in our hearts that nothing can touch, nothing can change. And this gives an amazing character to the whole concept of resurrection because Jesus is the first fruits. It's not only that the dead rise, but that God, by his power, brings back certain persons from among the dead on account of the favor which he has for them and because of the life and the spirit which was in them. And Christ has a quite peculiar place, life 
was in him and he is our life. He gained this victory by which we can now profit. Had he not gained the victory, we would have always remained in prison, always remained in death. He had power himself to resume life. The great principle is the same. It's not only a resurrection of the dead, but those who are alive, according to God, arise as the objects of favor. And by the exercise of that power, which would have all those who love him to be for himself. What a day. We're associated with Christ now in resurrection. Isn't that wonderful? We come out like him, not only from death, but also from the dead. So Christ and his people are identified together. If they do not rise, he is not raised. He was as really dead as we can be, as I said. He has taken our place under death. He was a man as we are men, apart from sin. So truly was he that if you deny this result for us, you deny the fact for him. And the object and the foundation of faith itself fails. This identification of Christ with men is so full of blessing. It gives the believer great joy, doesn't it? What a wonderful system of things has been put in place by God himself that brings poor, sinful man into such wonderful favor. What a cause for rejoicing. This is what gives peace and joy to the soul of the believer. This is what fills the hearts of God's people. This life that is his risen life is out of death is a shared life with those who love him. On the other side, if in my affections he is not raised, what do I have to live for? All is lost. I have no joy. I have no peace. I just want to apply it this way for a minute. I see so many believers and they seem to be miserable. They live in a kind of a spiritual no man's land. They believe in a historical Jesus and that he died for them, but they never seem to possess that risen life, which is Christ's life, and that he desires for us to share with him. They don't share in his resurrection and the power that comes from it to live for him. They wallow in their sin and their inability to have the victory that God wants each one to have. They are overcome with besetting sins and finally just think that this must be what life is all about. And they are, of all men, most miserable. This is not the good news of the gospel. This is not what God wants for us. The victory that is found in Christ is in his risen life. The Bible doesn't say, as he was, so are we in this world. 
It says, as he is, so are we in this world. As he is, the risen, glorified Son of God, Jesus, our Redeemer. God doesn't want us to try and be as he was. He wants us to be as he is, which includes all that he was and more. He's out of death. He's risen. He's vanquished every foe. He's victorious. And that victory becomes my victory as I trust in him. That is, as the risen, glorified man out of death, as he is now. And as risen, he's available to everyone that loves him as the one who gives the power to live the victorious Christian life. Dear fellow Christian, Christ is risen. Dear fellow Christian, Christ is risen. Oh, this should make Christianity the most exciting thing on earth. His resurrection was the most exciting thing in heaven. All heaven was aglow with interest when Jesus rose from the dead. Oh, I think every single angel in heaven knew. That's why the enemy did everything in his power to stop the resurrection. But you know what? The empty tomb says it all. Christ is not there. He is not here, but he is risen. And we are saved, it says, in the power of his life. Romans 5. The good news is that is risen, he saves. He takes us from the power of darkness and he gives us life. His risen life. My word, Christianity is exciting, isn't it? Makes me want to shout. I do a lot of that. Christianity is exciting, isn't it? Amen. We have a risen, glorified Lord Jesus Christ who ever lives to intercede and his life is my life. And I have the power now to walk here in him, the risen, the glorified Christ. God has this great victory that has been run, won in Christ. And friend, he wants to give it to you. Will you have it? You hear people say Christianity's old-fashioned and it's not relevant today. Boy, it's the most, is more relevant today because we need the power in Christ risen to walk here for him and to be able to be kept from the enemy, to be able to be kept from the world. It's so attractive since it involves a personal relationship with that risen, glorified man, the man out of death, who loves us. How could we even think that there's no resurrection? 
Christ is identified so much with us that if there's no resurrection that he, then he is not risen. And if Christ is not raised in my affections, I want to apply it that way this morning. Am I living my life as though Christ has won the victory and he lives in resurrection? Because if I'm not, then I'm not living the Christian life. I want to exercise our souls this morning. Christianity isn't about existing. Christianity is about life in Christ, the risen man. How wonderful that we can put our trust completely in him. And he will direct our paths. And he will come in and bless us as we learn to live and enjoy the relationship that a man out of death brings. Risen and glorified. Ascended into glory. And there he's seated at right, the right hand of God and he comes to us from that position. You know, it impressed me this morning in the Lord's Supper. It's wonderful for me to come and experience the Lord Jesus. But have we ever thought how wonderful it is to Jesus? How wonderful it is for the Lord Jesus to see the result of all that he's done, to see the result of that great work, that great cross work, that amazing death, that incredible resurrection. Now he's done all that that he might come to you where you are sitting on the seat here today. Oh, what joy. That's why the scripture says that there's joy in heaven over one sinner repenting. Heaven is glowing with joy. When one sinner repents, what happens on the earth? Nothing. Why we still get up in the morning, we go to work and we come home and all the drudgery of life but when one sinner repents, how much is heaven rejoicing over you, friend? How many times a day does heaven rejoice because there's a sinner repenting? Hallelujah. Praise God. How wonderful. May we each be blessed, dear friend, as we come to terms with the wonderful fact that Christ is risen. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we rejoice in you this morning. The fact that the Lord Jesus Christ has gone right through death. He's vanquished its power. He's bound the strong man and he's spoiled his goods. Father, we thank you that death's power has been vanquished forever because of what Jesus has done. But Father, we stand amazed with the fact that he's risen from among the dead. How wonderful. We pray that it might have a real 
impression on our lives. We pray that his life, risen from the dead, might be our life and that we might walk in the victory that he has won as applied to our lives. Father, keep us in this way everlasting, we pray. We thank you for our time here this morning. We believe you came in and blessed us, our God, as we came together to remember the Lord. Now we pray as we depart, Father, we pray that you would bless us and give us to know the joy and the peace that comes from believing in a risen Christ. We ask it in his precious name. Amen. Amen.